All right. Get out of the way. Can we just give it up for our worship team? I mean, we are amazingly blessed with that worship team. I just uh, was here early today, and just to see them coming together, and just, this is a production every Sunday, and I don't think you appreciate it unless you come early and see how early they're here, how engaged they are, working, practicing, so really appreciate that. So, uh, good morning, everybody. My name's Mark Steberg. I uh, uh, had a kind introduction there earlier, but uh, very honored to be able to, to speak to you all today as we continue this series on Love Works. It's based on the series, um, or actually the book by Joel Manby, and you heard uh, Brian talk a little bit about it, but Joel is the CEO of this company, Hershen Family Entertainment, and he's a self-professed Christian, and he's really focused on instilling in his company these biblical values of love that are found in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It isn't proud. It isn't self-seeking. It isn't easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. It loves the truth. And so far in our series, we've covered the uh, topics of patience uh, and kindness and trust. And today we're going to be focusing on selflessness because it says in 1 Corinthians 13.5 that love is not self-seeking. And so I'm just going to begin this with two disclosures. Okay? Disclosure number one is I am not a full-time minister. And as, as you heard my bio, I definitely am not, uh, I did not go to theology school. Uh, I am an un- ordinary and unschooled man in many ways. And uh, my day job is to work at a large mutual fund company. Uh, but I have been, uh, for the last 14 years of my life, going on 15 years, a, a follower of Jesus Christ. And I've studied his word. And I feel somewhat like Peter and John in the book of Acts chapter 3 and 4, where these are two fishermen that spent time with Jesus. And, you know, they didn't go to divinity school. They were not trained orators. Uh, but in Acts 4, we see that they did preach powerfully. So I hope it's in that spirit that I can come to you today and with God's spirit. But, but the second disclosure is that I am not the model of selflessness. God has a sense of humor. When, when C. Maurice asked me to do this sermon on selflessness, it actually came out of a leader's retreat we had uh, back in August, and he asked, hey, can you, can you also share that with the church? I'm like, oh, but, 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 that's, that's a different ballgame, you know, sharing with the community group leaders versus sharing with the church. But uh, God knows that it's something I need to work on. It's something I will be working on for the rest of my life, amen, being selfless. And there's nothing like being asked to preach on a topic that will deepen your convictions on a topic. So uh, please uh, don't take my comments today as any indication that I think I've arrived in this area of selflessness in any way. But, but I don't know about you, but as I thought about this and I thought about selflessness, um, I do have a cynical side, I'm, I, I'll confess. And, and I said, well, if I look at this cynically for a minute about selflessness, uh, several things came to mind. And maybe you can relate to some of these. I mean, selflessness sounds great. But it also is careful, I think you can't be naive at the same time, right? I mean, if you don't look out for yourself, no one else is going to look out for you, except your mother, okay? So that's the second, that's the first thing. The second thing I thought is like, wow, how do you really define selflessness? I mean, I feel very selfless compared to some other people I know, compared to my coworkers and some of these people I know in my neighborhood and so on. So how selfless is selfless enough to make God help happy at the end of the day? 
And then the third thing I thought is, you know, okay, if I'm a little self-centered once in a while, I'm not really hurting anybody, am I? Uh, you know, will it really keep me out of heaven if I'm really self-centered and self-focused? So those are some of the things I thought through my mind as I went to the dark side. But, but when I go to the light side, you know, I, I, I think we need to explore these questions. But when you boil it all down, we all want to live meaningful lives here, don't we, on earth. We want, it, we want to be able to inspire others and to look back on our lives and say that we accomplished something great. And there are many ways that we can inspire and many ways that we can have an impact. But there's something about courageous leaders that selflessly lay down their lives that is inspiring. It's inspiring to me. And I'm sure you can think of many examples of inspiring leaders. But one of the examples, you know, we always go to movies, right? How many like movies? I mean, how many of you have seen the movie Gladiator? Okay, hands? All right, I see a lot of hands. Probably 70% of the audience. If you haven't seen it, you need to repent because it is one of the best movies ever, in my opinion. Opening scene of Gladiator. Remember that? Battle. Roman army, very organized, rank-and-file army, squaring off against these Germanic hordes, right? These guys with long hair, you know, they had the axes, they had the spears, not very organized, just yelling a lot. Looked like a bunch of Harley Davidson dudes out in, 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 the, in, the, in the forest. And they're my ancestors, by the way. The Germanic hordes are my ancestors. So I was kind of rooting for them. But So basically you have this very organized Roman army led by General Maximus. Right? And he rides his horse through the, through the troops and, and they're all saluting him as he goes by and he stands up to give his speech before they go into battle with these dramatic horse. And you know, Maximus says a couple of things that really resonate with me. First of all, he says, on my signal, unleash hell. I love that. You know, that's cool. And they do. But the really thing that resonated is what you do in this life echoes in eternity. What you do in this life echoes in eternity. And then he proceeds to lead his men, not follow them, but lead them into battle, and it's not even close. The Romans just take these Germanic hordes out. There's nothing left when it's all done. But Maximus was willing to lay it down, right? He had an eternal perspective, and he went into battle, and he led the way, and he was selfless. And that's what I think inspires us at the end of the day. And there's great value in selflessness. Uh, you know, what we do in this life does echo in eternity. God's given us 80 years if we're lucky, 90 years, if we're not so lucky, 100 years, right, on this earth. And he promises us eternal life if we're willing to lay down our life in this earth while we're here, in the short time that we're on this earth. But real heroes are sort of rare today, aren't they? It really stands out when you see somebody like Joel Manby that you saw here, who's basically becoming one of the employees of his company. He's the CEO but he's humbling himself to see what's really going on on the front line. And he's leading his company with love. And he's trying to get the people to really embrace these concepts of love in his company. It stands out. But as I look around every day, I don't see a lot of selfless people who are willing to lay it on the line for a cause greater than themselves. And I want to explore today why that's the case and what we can do about it, more importantly. Because the title of my lesson here is Lose It to Save It. And I'm going to cover three things. I'm going to start exploring this concept of looking out for number one. Maybe you've heard that before. I'm looking out for number one. I saw it on a bumper sticker the other day. Number one is the most important, me, myself. So we're going to talk about that. Then we're going to talk about the divine model. 
and what we can learn from Jesus in this area of selflessness. And then we're going to end with a test, a little bit of a self-examination of how we're doing in these areas when it comes to selflessness. So we'll get through that here. And I'm going to start with looking out for number one. Be opening your Bibles with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. You know, a deeply embedded value in our culture today in America is this value of freedom and the pursuit of happiness. If you've read the Declaration of Independence, you'll read about freedom and the pursuit of happiness. And freedom is, excuse me, a great thing. It's an amazing thing. And I believe that God wants us to be free to make our own decisions. But just like with so many good things, Satan can take that and he can twist it and turn it into something evil. And when it comes to freedom, I I believe that people can use their freedom in the wrong way. They can use their freedom to be selfish. That's where it becomes a problem. And the problem is that we can get confused on what makes us happy, right? We pursue selfish things that we think are going to make us happy. Immoral relationships. Think about that. Think about money. Think about power. Think about pursuing nice homes, nice cars, drugs, alcohol. And we we keep trying to fill that, right? And, 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 And we get deeper and deeper and deeper in that emptiness. And then we can subtly condone our selfishness, right? We start saying to ourselves, well, you know, I'll do what I want. It's a free country. Or we say, you know, if I don't look out for myself, no one else is going to look out for me, right? Or we say, you know, I deserve this. I deserve to be happy. I deserve this. I deserve, I'm entitled to receive this. If you've talked to a self-consumed person, it's almost like, enough about me. What do you think about me, right? So, we condone that selflessness, but... You know, human nature hasn't changed that much, I would say, over 2,000 years. 2,000 years ago, the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to his trusted assistant, Timothy. And and he gave this account of human nature in 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 1. He says, but mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of, what? Themselves. Aha. Lovers of money. Boastful, proud, abusive, disobedience to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with such people. I think there's a reason why Paul started with lovers of themselves. Because selflessness, or excuse me, selfishness is at the heart of many evils today. And if you just look around, and I was thinking about it, you, you can get depressed really quickly. So don't, we're going to take this to the light here in a minute. But just think about what the, the consequences of, of selfishness are for a minute. Think about divorce in our country. Over 50% of marriages end in divorce. The average marriage lasts how long? 8.8 years in this country. And I'm very pleased to tell you, I am now above average. Tomorrow, my wife, me, and I will celebrate 12 wonderful years of of nuptial bliss. So, she is a wonderful, patient, selfless woman. But how many marriages fail because of selfishness? 
Think about what happened in our financial system. I'm close to that because I work in that world. But think about what happened about five years ago. Folks, we were on the brink of the next Great Depression in this country. The banking system nearly imploded. And what was the cause of that? Selfishness at all levels. From people that were overextending on their mortgages, needing more house than they could you know, afford, all the way up to the highest levels of these big investment banks where they were packaging up bad loans and selling them off left and right. Selfishness. Think about abuse. You know, since 1980, child abuse in this country has increased 134%. Child sexual abuse is up 350% since 1980. How can harming an innocent child be anything but selfish? Think about pornography. Nine out of ten boys in this country see pornography before they're 18. Nine out of ten. Looking at a naked person without being in a committed marriage reeks of selfishness to me. Think about the shootings we've seen. Washington, D.C. most recently. Think about Connecticut, Colorado. Think about around the world, leaders using chemical weapons against their own people. Ultimate acts of selfishness. So you can see that a lot of ugly sin ties back to being self-consumed. But what concerns me is that people may not take to heart how serious the consequences of selfishness really are. It's one of the main problems we have in this world today. Paul saw it 2,000 years ago. He saw what was coming. But here's the bottom line. We can all shake our heads in sadness and unbelief as we see the condition of our world today. But there's only one thing that's going to change it, in my opinion. And that is more unselfish heroes in this world that are willing to lay down their lives and not just think about themselves. We don't need more people that are just looking out for number one. Because it's going to make our condition even worse, folks. And you can be part of the problem, or you can be part of the solution. And that's where Jesus comes in. Uh, Fortunately, we have a God who knows exactly what we need. And he gave us what I like to call the divine model. So, you know, Joel Manby points out in this book, Love Works, which, by the way, you can pick up in the foyer if you want to read it. It's a great leadership book if you're in a leadership position. But, you know, he points out in his book that a selfless leader can change the world. And he's no question proving that in what he's doing with Hershen Family Entertainment. He is changing the face of that company. But Jesus shows us that it is true. A selfless leader can change the world. Right? More people looking out for number one is not the answer. Jesus gives us the answer with what I call the divine model. So let's take a look at how it works. Now, I'm not going to go into Luke chapter 8 right now, but if you read through the book of Luke chapter 8, you'll really see that Jesus is in the prime of his ministry. He is out there going from town to town in Israel with his 12 apostles, and they are proclaiming the kingdom of God. They are healing people. They are driving out demons. And large crowds of people are beginning to follow Jesus. So he's really cranking. And in Luke 8, verse 42, as an example, he's going, Jesus is on his way to help this dying daughter of the the synagogue ruler. And the crowd is so intensely pushing against Jesus that the Bible says in verse 42 of Luke 8 that, They almost crushed the guy, right? They're just trying to get to him and just trying to get a piece of him. I can only imagine what that must have been like to have all of this extreme poverty in Israel just around you, just trying to get to you, trying to touch you, trying to get a piece of your time to to the point where you're just uh, really crushed. I'm claustrophobic, so it would have freaked me out a little bit. But it must have been overwhelming to Jesus and his his apostles. But as we get to Luke chapter 9, Jesus decides at this point to divide and conquer with his apostles. 
right? So he gives them instructions. You know, he'd been training his disciples how to drive out demons, how to cure diseases, how to preach about the kingdom of God. And now it was time for the disciples to go out and do what they had seen Jesus doing. So he gives them the instructions of how to do it. And then if we pick it up in Luke chapter 9, verse 6, it says, So they set out and went from village to village, preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. So the disciples were selflessly obeying Jesus, following his example of selflessness as they went from town to town. They were working hard to preach the word and heal people. And then in verse 10, they're done with that, they come back to Jesus to report the good news. And if we pick it up in verse 10, it says, When the apostles returned, they reported to Jesus all that they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. So, imagine how the apostles must have felt at this point. They were probably like, wow, we've done some majorly awesome things for Jesus here, right? We were working hard. Peter was like, yeah, this guy came up to me, sores all over, nasty pus everywhere, and I touched him, and it totally healed his skin. And uh, you probably had John who was like, well, yeah, this guy came up to me, and he was so demon-possessed, man, his breath was kicking. And I touched him, and the demon just flew, man. And then Thomas, doubting Thomas, was probably like, you know, I didn't think I was going to do any of this stuff. But I totally preached the word, right? So I'm sure they were, they were tired. And, from, and, you know, they'd worked hard. They were tired. They, they were preaching and healing. And by the way, they were walking from town to town, right, in sandals through the desert. No provisions. Jesus said, don't take anything with you, by the way, right? So I bet they were like, "Woo, that was awesome. But now it's time to get off the radar for a few days, right? Let's withdraw, Jesus. Uh, let's get out of here. Let's go over to this hotel in Bethsaida. I hear they got a pool and a hot tub. We'll kick it for a few days. It'll be great. I bet they were looking forward to some rest, right, after they'd worked hard for the Lord. But if you look in verse 11, what happened? But the crowds learned about it and followed him. So, so the disciples must have been like, man, can't these people just go away? For a few days. I mean, we're trying to rest here, people. Don't you understand this? We've been working hard. Shoo, beat it. Right? But what did Jesus do? Verse 11. He welcomed them and spoke about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. So Jesus didn't send the crowds away because he was tired. Or he didn't feel good. Right? He selflessly kept on giving. Now, the apostles must have had at least a little bit of an attitude at this point, right? Because they were on their way to vacation. Their vacation was being interrupted. And all these pesky, sick, demon-possessed people were all around. And they were probably like, okay, Jesus, all right, you're the boss, man. We'll spend yet another day. We're supposed to be on vacation, but we'll spend another day. We'll spend another day healing and preaching and all this stuff. Pick it up in verse 12. It says, late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said... Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. And he replied, you give them something to eat. So the apostles came to Jesus at yet another hard day of work. And they're like, okay, Jesus, enough is enough, right? It's dinner time. We are starving these people are starving. It's time to send them out to go find dinner, find where they're going to stay for the evening, and we're going to go on our vacation now, back to that hotel beside it, and kick, some, kick it by the pool and drink some beers. 
But what did Jesus say? You give them something to eat. So imagine the reaction of the apostles at this point. Okay? They're probably like, right. <laughs> you know? Love you, Jay. But there's 5,000 people here. Right? And, dude, we don't even have enough food to feed ourselves, let alone all these people. And, by the way, weren't we heading to the hotel beside us for some rest and relaxation for a few days? What, what happened to that plan, Jesus? I mean, we're willing to be selfless and all, but this is getting a little out of control here. And, by the way, we're getting hungry. And Peter gets very cranky when he's hungry. Right? He's very ill-tempered. Verse 14. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. So the disciples did so, and everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he, set, he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. So the disciples pushed through their attitudes. They followed Jesus' direction. And they served dinner to 5,000 men. And by the way, if you do the math, 5,000 men divided by 12 apostles means that each apostle served over 400 people. Men, right? Now, there were families here, presumably. That doesn't include families, women and children. And don't make no mistake, those little kids can eat a lot of food. So we have to include them. But that's quite a bit of work. Serving 400 people, maybe 800 if each person has a kid, whatever the number was. That's a lot of work when you're already tired and you're coming off many days of preaching and healing and walking all over Israel. And then at the end of that intense day that they had had there, wherever they were in that remote place, the day, by the way, the apostles were supposed to be hanging out by the pool in Bethsaida with Jesus kicking it. What did they have to do at the end of that day? They had to go pick up leftovers, right? Go pick up the leftovers. So Peter was beyond cranky at this point, by the way. He, he hadn't eaten for, for a long time, so he was surly. But just to show you how beautiful God is, how many basketfuls of food were left over? Twelve. How many apostles were there? Twelve. So after selflessly serving over 5,000 men, Jesus wasn't going to let his men go hungry. He gave them a whole basketful of food, which was probably more than they could even eat, Right? Jesus doesn't let us go hungry when we're laying down our lives to serve others. But what was Jesus teaching his men here? Selflessness. Now, I can relate with the apostles here and what they were probably thinking and going through in this scene. Because I get to the point where I start getting a bad attitude. My wife and my two boys can attest to this, right? I get grumpy like Peter. And... Uh, at some point, I'm just like, I don't know how much more I can do, God. And, and then I just get to the point where I, I can't add one more thing on my agenda. I am exhausted. I'm only going to make it, Lord, if you can carry me through this. And in verse 23, you know, Jesus calls them together. And he teaches them a little bit more about selflessness. It says in verse 23 of chap Luke chapter 9, he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? So Jesus didn't just talk about selflessness. He actually lived it. 
And, and he said that you cannot follow him without denying yourself every day and setting your own life aside. So Jesus set forth this divine model to change the world. And the reason I think he had to emphasize self-denial and selflessness so often to his followers is because he knows what's in a man. And he knows that the plan to change the world doesn't work without selfless heroes who are willing to set aside their own comfort and their own agenda. Jesus invested in his apostles. He invested in people. He poured himself out for them. And he expected those apostles to invest themselves in the church. And he expects the church to pour themselves out for a lost world. That's the divine model. The world should see the selflessness of Jesus through his church. Just like Jesus laid down his life to selflessly share the good news and to help those in need, his church should be doing the same thing. If we hold back, if we hold on to our time and our treasures and our talents, the divine model breaks down, number one. But if we try to save our lives, we're going to lose it in the end. We can't be his disciples. So there's a lot riding on selflessness. You know, as Brian Craig pointed out last week in his sermon on trust, God is trusting us to follow through with this divine model. He trusts us, in spite of our weaknesses, in spite of our selfishness, in spite of our self-centered nature, to, he, to, to really invest in other people. He's trusting us to do that. But that requires us to think beyond ourselves and our own lives and to be heroic in our lives. So look at your life and what you're investing in. Are you part of the divine model? Are you showing the heroism of Jesus to a lost world? And if not you, then who? There isn't a plan B. That's Jesus' plan. So it's time to make this even more personal. Are you guys still with me? Am I bugging you? All right. How are you doing in the area of selflessness? So let's just walk through a short inventory to test ourselves. Because it does say in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, chapter, verse 5, that you should examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. So there are three areas where we are going to examine ourselves here in the next few minutes. Our time, our treasure, and our talents. And as we look at these areas, can, can we make a deal together? You guys want to make a deal? Just... Let's make a deal that we're not going to compare ourselves to other people. Because, you know what, it's really easy to feel good about yourself. You say, well, I'm doing all this and that person's not, so I'm way ahead of them, right? If you follow Christ, what is your standard? Jesus Christ is your standard, right? So let's, let's make a deal that that's going to be our standard as we think through these three things, okay? Amen? Deal? And let's start with time. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 says... You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. And I'm starting with time on purpose. Because for me, it is my greatest struggle. The demands on my time, and I'm sure a lot of you can relate to this, but the demands on my time feel overwhelming. I have a demanding job as a senior executive at a company. I work 12-hour days. I'm in a demanding phase of my life with my two young boys, Andy and Ethan, who I love more than anything on this world other than my wife. They are amazing boys, but I feel like I never have enough time to spend with them. 
I want to spend more time with them. I travel a lot on business. In August, month of August, check this out. In one month, in 30 days, I had to travel to Pittsburgh, to Boston, to Florida, to Chicago, to Palm Desert, to New York in a 30-day period. Demanding ministry, leading a community group of over 40 people. I don't feel like I have much left to give at the end of the day. And I have a confession. I do, at times, want to start taking time back for me. And I start feeling like the apostles. They were probably like, we just want to go withdraw for a few days and kick it, right? We're done. I'm not always surrendered to giving up my precious time, weekends, weeknights, to serve others. Bible studies, family devos, discipleship times, hospitality, outreach, midweek, community service, leaders' meetings. But then I remember, I remember, I remember something. I force myself, I have to force myself to remember this. It doesn't come easily, but I force myself. That on January 10th of 1999, at 11.30 in the morning, I proclaim that Jesus is my Lord. And that means that Jesus is the Lord of my time. It does not belong to me. I was bought at a price. A very, very high price on the cross. Can I give up a few hours to serve others? I would think so. And it actually feels great when I force myself to overcome my selfishness and actually sacrifice time to help others. How many hours a week are focused on you? If you're visiting us today, are you willing to sacrifice some of your time to study the Bible with us, to learn what God wants for your life? Are you willing to sacrifice a few hours to learn that? How many times have you served in a community service project this year? that Chip and Lorraine is so tirelessly promote in the foyer every week. You know, giving up a Saturday morning to take your kids to encourage, for example, some elderly people that have Alzheimer's seems like a sacrifice. Two hours on a Saturday morning. But if those of you who have done it can attest, it is so rewarding. You know, just a story. Um, my wife and my, my boys and I have been pretty active in the Silverado Senior Living Project that we have. It's a memory-impaired senior center. And there's a, there's a man there that we met, and we'll just call him Raymond. And Raymond has Alzheimer's, or he had Alzheimer's. And you know, when we go interact with Raymond, you know, he wasn't really responsive to adults. Um, and he didn't really care for the dog therapy. As we took dogs through there, he didn't really have anything to do with them. But we brought our kids with us to Silverado. And as I took my three-year-old at the time, took him by the hand, and we walked from resident to resident, and we touched them, and we talked with them, and we interacted with them, even though some of them couldn't really speak, right? We got to Raymond, who was sitting in his chair, not really engaged. But when he saw the children, he came alive. He smiled. I'd never seen him smile until he saw my son, Ethan. He talked with them. He always gave, at the end of our meetings, as many times as we went to see them, he always gave my kids a huge hug at the end. That's just all he wanted. He just wanted to give them a hug. And I could tell that that the encouragement from the kids totally changed his day. So we visited with Raymond every time we went to Silverado, and the kids loved him. And then one month we went to Silverado, and we were going to the first floor, to the second floor, to the third floor, and where Raymond usually was, he wasn't there. So we went to the fourth floor, and still no Raymond. So I asked the nurse, where's Raymond? And she said, well, he passed away a few weeks ago. 
and it broke my heart. But then I was encouraged to remember that we were able to make the last few days of his life on this earth a little more encouraging. What are you doing with your time? Have you died to yourself? Or are you taking your time back from Jesus? And if you're taking it back, who are you taking it from? Are you taking it from someone like Raymond that needs you, that needs your encouragement? And if you feel like you possibly can't make any more time in your calendar to help others, then I suggest you reevaluate what's on your schedule. Because you have to ask yourself, is what I'm doing, is what I'm doing in my schedule going to echo in eternity? Ask yourself that question. Let's move on to treasure. It says in Matthew 6, starting in verse 1, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you do with your money is a direct reflection of where your heart is. And the Bible calls us to cheerfully give in keeping with our income, not reluctantly or under compulsion, uh, Joel Manby talks about it in his book. That he even asked his tax accountant to keep him accountable to, to giving a percentage of his income. So if that's what you need to do, amen. Manby also warns about something called lifestyle creep, which is simply said, the more you make, the more you spend. Spend on yourself, right? And there's a lot of truth to that. Uh, you know, there's a fam- the famous author, G.K. Chesterton, who wrote... Um, a really interesting phrase that I've always, it's always stuck with me. But he said that there are two ways that you can get enough in this world. Two ways you can get enough. Number one, you can continue to accumulate more and more. Or number two, you can just want less. I think sometimes we just need to want less. Um, and, and Manby talks about setting a limit to what you really need to live on. And then once you earn that much money, give the excess to God. That's going way beyond a tithe, folks. It really is. Um, and if you, if you set an expectation of what you need to live on and you set a budget, that standard of living doesn't need to change just because you begin making more money than that. And, and he might bless you with more because God's trusting you to give that access to somebody who needs it. Me and I have had convictions about giving uh, for a long time. When we got married, we had very little money to our name and we had $25,000 in debt. But we never stopped giving generously to the Lord. And over the years, God has blessed us unbelievably. And, and, and we've paid off the debt a long time ago, and, and we've been able to be generous in our giving. And, and we've also learned, though, that, that material blessings are a test. Because the more you have on this earth, the harder you have to work on your heart to be willing to give it all away. 1 Timothy 6, verse 10 says, that some people eager for more money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. We can always be seeking more, but sometimes we just have to stop and say, maybe we should just want less. And if you don't have a budget, please repent. Uh, there's plenty of brothers and sisters. I'm looking at Mark Sujimoto right there. But there are plenty of uh, brothers and sisters that are shining examples of fiscal responsibility. Find out what they do and imitate them. And speaking of budgets, make sure that you have a budget for generosity. You know, Mia and I 
moved into our current house in Manhattan Beach about a year and a half ago, and we noticed about a year in, we were looking at our budget, and we're like, my word, our grocery budget's out of control. Our boys are still nine and four, so they eat a lot, but they're not teens yet, right? So why is our groceries out of control? So we, we thought about it, and we're like, well, we've done a lot more hospitality than we did before in another house where we couldn't, you know, have people over as easily. And, and, and we started looking at it, and we thought about it, and we're like, you know what, that's awesome. If we have to have a higher budget for generosity in our grocery budget so we can entertain people and back down somewhere else, then we'll do that. And we did. And we have so many people over. Our kids every night are like, who's coming over tonight? Like, this is like, it's like normal life for them, right? So, so be generous. Have a budget for generosity. How are you doing with your money? Are you tithing? Do you have a budget to be generous? Or do you spend every penny you make on yourself? And then talents. We'll end with talents. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10 says, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You were made by God with special talents and abilities. And he wants you to use those for good works. What are you good at? You know, whatever it is, it's a gift from the Lord. So, great examples. As I mentioned earlier, the singers that come in here early, the band, Brian, Dwight, the whole crew, amazingly talented people that are using it for the Lord, right? I think about our ushers. Thankless job, by the way, but they work hard. They're encouragers, and they excel at encouraging. And they're here every morning giving. I think about our leaders that are very, you know, talented at leading people. You know, I think of people like the Marichis, the Wingies, the Atkins, the Johnsons, the Kramers, and everybody else that, that leads, that has a leadership position, uh, using their talents for the Lord. Think about our teachers and kingdom kids. You know, they're, they're, they're giving, you're teaching, you're giving to our kids because you can encourage the children. How are you using your talents for the Lord? Are you being selfless with your abilities? Or are you using your God-given talents selfishly for yourself? Are you ready to stand before the Lord and give an account of what you did with what he's given you. Because you will. You will. And that concludes our test. How did you do? If you're feeling convicted like I am, um, and you're not passing the test, here's the good news. You can repent. Right? You can decide today to give more of yourself. You don't have to look out for number one. You can be part of the solution, not part of the problem in our selfish world today. In fact, Jesus' divine model to change the world depends on your selfishness. Selflessness, not your selfishness, your selflessness. <laughs> selflessness. Without it, the plan breaks down and, and Jesus doesn't have a plan B, plan B. And if you're wondering how to be more selfless, give your time, your treasure, and your talents. They aren't yours anyway. And one day you will get, give an account of what you did with what you have. Be a hero. Use the short years you have on this life to be a hero. Save your life and you'll lose it. Lose your life and you'll save it. Lose it to save it. That's a decision that comes with a promise from the Lord. In Hebrews chapter 6, and I'll end here. Verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. Things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget the work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. 
We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. And now I want to hand it over to my lovely wife, Mia, who's one of the most diligent people I know. And she's going to share her thoughts to lead us into the communion. Thank you. I'm grateful for the opportunity to share some thoughts on how the cross has transformed my life this morning. This is especially fitting since I celebrated my 18th anniversary of becoming a Christian. Uh, I was baptized. Thank you. I was baptized in the Atlantic Ocean on September 10th, 1995 at 9:10 in the morning. I remember it vividly. I would like to share with you just a small part of my backstory, uh, who I was before I made the Bible my standard, that correlates with Mark's sermon. There's a lot more to it, but just a little snippet this morning. So needless to say, um, I was extremely self-absorbed. I wanted popularity, uh, to be the life of the party, to be edgy. That's very obvious. For instance, I had extremely wild behavior, a lot of drunkenness, partying. I'd be the first to hop up on a table or a bar and and get the party started, dancing, do just about anything on a dare. On the other hand, I was helping others. I was tutoring inner city kids. I was on a planning committee in Baltimore to hosting a big gala for a, a charity event. Did lots of favors for friends. I was known as a sweet and giving person. Sounds great, right? Well, this wasn't so obvious because on the inside, my motives were not pure. They were selfish. They were very conditional. It was all about me. I wanted recognition. I wanted to look good. It's very much a people pleaser. Avoid conflict. Uh, I wanted to feel good about myself. I gave gifts and favors, but inside I did it so I could get some reciprocation. Another example of who I am without God is really doing what I want in the moment, not thinking about how destructive and how that can impact another person's life. To avoid conflict, uh, back in my high school years, I cheated on my then uh, boyfriend, my high school sweetheart, who, was, uh, who absolutely adored me. His family was uh, wonderful to me. Um, and instead of doing the right thing uh, and ending the relationship, uh, I cheated on him. And this betrayal was so painful for him that he was at the point where he considered ending his own life. Um, thank God he didn't. But for many years that followed People, mutual friends would tell me that he never really recovered from that. He always had an underlying sadness to him. Um, So several years later, after I got out of school, was working in the business world, uh, one night I made a decision to go back to a hotel room of a married business associate who was in in town, a contractor with the company I was working for. Um, I was more concerned about if my coworkers were going to find out. Uh, 
I actually, as, as sick as it sounds, I was kind of happy he was married because more than likely he wouldn't say anything because he was married. I was more concerned about myself and those things rather than the fact that I had just committed adultery and I damaged a marriage regardless of whether or not his wife ever found out that if she did, obviously that's even more devastating for her. But regardless of that, um, I damaged a marriage and a relationship there. Uh, so when I began to study the Bible and see God's plan for my life, the selflessness of Jesus, that was key in helping me become a disciple. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8 in the Living Bible, it says, Don't be selfish. Don't live to make a good impression on others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't just think about your own affairs, but be interested in others, too, and in what they are doing. Your attitude should be the kind that was shown us by Jesus Christ, who, though he was God, did not demand anything and cling to his rights as God. But he laid aside his mighty power and glory, taking the disguise of a slave and becoming like men. And he humbled himself even further, going so far as actually to die a criminal's death on the cross. A criminal's death on the cross. Jesus, the Son of God, perfect, never sinned in his entire life, totally selfless. The fact that Jesus suffered extreme and incomprehensible physical and emotional and spiritual pain and died to take the punishment that I deserved for my sin is what changed my selfish motives. The selflessness and the love of Jesus is what motivates me and keeps me faithful. Thank you for listening. So, we're going to take communion now. And as we do, let's reflect upon Jesus and and how he modeled selflessness for us through his life and his death on the cross. And, And think about how you're doing in this area and what you need to change. And as we take the bread that represents his body and the juice that represents his blood, let's make some decisions this morning to be more like him. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you with with humble hearts, and we come to you sobered, God, by uh, the sin of selfishness and and the the, the incredible just impact and just damage that it causes in our world today, God. And uh, we're grateful that you came to the earth to show us the way, uh, to show us selflessness, to embody it, and ultimately embody it in your death on the cross. And God, just help us to show you to a lost world and and to, to just remember this morning all that we have because of what you accomplished on the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.